When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ho, 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 hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of Bar Humbug. Look, it wouldn't be Christmas without a few little extras, and goodness knows none of us can afford to put anything extra in the stocking this year, so here you go. This time, I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Tom Parry, who is a stand-up comedian. Um, He's been around for a very long time, doing great work at the Edinburgh Festival and on the radio and on TV. And this year, he turned screenwriter with this year's delightful Your Christmas or Mine, Now, if you've been listening to previous episodes, you've already heard from the film's stars, Asa Butterfield and Cora Kirk. And of course, myself and Kat Brown have chatted about all the film's rail-based shenanigans. But I thought it'd be interesting to have a little bit more about its creation and about its journey to the screen from the man who first came up with the idea and whether he thinks there might be a sequel in it. So here is Tom Parry. Please enjoy. All right, well, I am delighted to be joined by Tom Parry, author of, screenwriter of Your Christmas or Mine. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good, actually. Um, we're recording this on the eve of the film's release. So, yeah, it goes out tomorrow around the world. So it's a weird feeling. But, I, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. Awesome, awesome. We had a screening a couple of nights ago, and I got to see it on the big screen. And uh, Hey, yeah, it's it's you know it's the first first time I've written a feature, so it's an odd feeling, but it's um it is lovely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say because I was looking looking over your you know your list of credits, and you've you've done a lot of work in in TV. You do a podcast, which we were just talking about as well. But yeah, so how did this come about for you? Was it was this something that you were out pitching? Was it something that they came to you and they've got we've got this vague idea and we need someone who can actually make it real? How did no, it happen? It, it's an idea that came to me. And I, I, funny enough, I found an email today. Um, I sent an email about it in 2011 to someone saying I've had an idea for a Christmas film. And it was just, it was literally like a one line. I, I kind of, the idea kind of came to me and I thought, surely someone's done that. And you would think it's a it's yeah. such an elegant idea you would you would actually think that it, and that was my first response was someone's done that surely so i was looking around thinking you know where's it being done have i kind of remembered this um idea and, and i couldn't find it anywhere and i kind of thought well, bloody hell i've got you know i should really try and um write that myself and because i'm yeah like i'm a, i'm a my background's in live comedy chiefly like i'm in a sketch group and i do edinburgh festival i've done lots and lots of shows at the edinburgh festival so my, in my head i was like is this a is this a play i could take to edinburgh yeah. and then i thought no you know mm-hmm. and, and because i'd written some sitcom i kind of thought maybe it's a tv film and weirdly my, i tell you my first touchdown in terms of what i what i saw it as do you remember bernard and the genie um like richard oh, yeah. curtis's first tv film was like a you know lenny henry alan cummings vehicle and it was like a tv movie at christmas and my sister and i recorded that and we were obsessed with bird and the genie and i thought oh maybe i could get like a 
TV film out of this idea. And I saw it yeah. as like a Bird of the Genie type TV film. So, you know, I, I, I previously tried, you know, seeing if I could get it away at BBC or ITV or anything like that. And then, you know, over the years, I'd kind of written it and rewritten it. And a friend of mine was working at Shiny Button and kind of got in touch and said, have you got any feature ideas? Because mm-hmm. we want to pitch some feature ideas. And I said, I've got more than that. I've got a script, you know, and I was like, it's Christmas script and here it is. And and off off we went from there, really. Amazing. Amazing. And so how long how long ago was it? That, do you reckon that you had the idea? I, I, well, I thought it was I thought it was 2014, but I actually started writing it in 2014. I had the idea in 2011. So, yeah, 10 years. Wow. Okay. It takes a while, of, doesn't it? It has done, yeah, and I mean, it's always just been a pet project that I've been able to go back to, and I, you know, I had it in development at a certain stage with the producer, and she helped me kind of write it, uh, the initial draft, and then Kate Heggie, the producer on this one, has kind of uh, taken on the second movement of it, really. But yeah, the, the first producer was, I should mention, like, Hannah Pescod was the first, who's a brilliant, brilliant producer, exec producer now, and Kate Heggie's the producer who's, who's got it across the line with me, and they kind of really helped shape it as well you know from a script editing point of view and kind of guided me through the process of, of, of writing my first feature so I do I mean I'm indebted to them um but it is it's a it's a strange feeling tonight having lived with an idea for 10 years for it to become something tangible and out there in the world yeah yeah that's amazing <laughs> so tell me about was it always going to be a Christmas film was it was there ever a sort of just they just go to each other's houses no. and, and was it, it always had to be christmas had to be christmas and i, th- I think weirdly i'm not a massive i, like, I love I, i'm a big fan of rom-coms and i love christmas films i'm not a huge fan of christmas rom-coms mm. because i don't particularly think of christmas as a, a necessarily romantic time i see it as like a time for family escapade so like from a, from a, like a comedic point of view I, you know, I thought this has to be Christmas because what's the most stressful time to put somebody into, you know, your your house? Like my house is crazy at Christmas and my partner's house is different at Christmas and it's always a, a challenge going to your partner's Christmas and it's even more, you know, so imagine if they weren't there with you. So, like, it had to be Christmas. And weirdly, like, I mean, like, it gets described as a rom-com and it's kind of pitched there as a rom-com, but I don't really, it's not particularly, a, I, think, I think all the kind of love, the most of the love that's in the film and... The story is really about trying to get home for Christmas, which is kind of the staple, you know, that, that's your Christmas movie. It's not it's not necessarily it's a bit. Of, it has a bit of a will they won't they rom-com, but it isn't from a personal point of view. I, I feel quite unromantic at Christmas, but I do feel very kind of it's all about getting, you know, time with the family and making sure that it it all, it all goes to plan in, in that kind of regard rather than, oh, I'm going to propose to my partner. I've never really yeah. felt that inclination. I feel like Christmas proposals are, are kind of a bit too much. I mean, no disrespect to anybody who's who's had one or done one, but it feels like there's already a lot going on, guys. Let's not add to the pile. Like, get, like just rein it in. Rein it in a little bit. I feel very strongly about that too. I feel like surely you can be more imaginative than a Christmas Day proposal. <laughs> That's, yeah. That is kind of... And, and it, it, what I find quite interesting is there's like a whole genre of these kind of hallmark Christmas rom-coms and they go out of their way to pitch Christmas as the most romantic time of the year and, like, mm. you need to fall in love at Christmas. And I don't think that's true. I think that's... And I think that's part of the reason why. There, there seems to be quite a low bar around expectations on Christmas romantic comedies. I think people mm-hmm. know what... They, they kind of go, for what it is, or, you know, like... 
that sense of when when the when the Netflix kind of trailers come out in November, people go like, "Oh my god, this looks so trashy! I can't wait to watch it." It's kind of like the response I get from like all my friendship group. They're all like, "Oh, this looks you know this looks awful! I can't wait." It's kind of like the atmosphere around Christmas rom coms. I, th- I partly I think that attitude is partly because people know in real life it isn't that actually lovey dovey a time. Mm. You know, yeah. I think I think that might be part of it. And it is more about it is more about getting home to family or or finding your own family, you know, your own created chosen family to be with rather than finding a date. I feel like finding a date for Christmas is not so much of a thing. Finding a date for a wedding is a thing. Mm-hmm. Finding a date maybe for Valentine's Day might be a thing. Yeah. But finding a date for Christmas is not a particular hang up that I'm aware of myself or Completely. friends having. I mean, ever. it's a terrible date, isn't it? Imagine. Yeah. Oh God. It'll imagine it's awful. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I, I, like to be honest, I'm trying to think about like relationships I've been in. Like, you, you're two years in or something before you kind of make the commitment to kind of, oh, I'm going to come to your family for Christmas. It's like two or three years maybe, because mm. obviously you only get one Christmas a year, and like the first Christmas you're together, you're like, well, we've only been together six months. We're not going to spend Christmas together. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, don't be ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> that, that'd absolutely. That would, that would be a bit. Yeah. That'd be a bit much. That'd be a bit psychotic, frankly. At times. Yeah. So you know, by the second year, you might think, oh, yeah, I suppose. But but then also like quite often, especially I think certainly from my experience, when you live together as a couple in London. You, you know the vast majority of my friends who i know lived in london together and it's like you go home for christmas so you don't want to be like well i'm with you all year it's okay not to be with you for two <laughs> days because i can go and be with my family and we can do the stuff that we've done since i was six or seven you know and, and that's that's what i kind of wanted i wanted to write a script that was a, a bit reflective of that like how you know you get trapped in these kind of christmas traditions with your family and stuff because for those three days you do have these kind of rituals and these idiosyncrasies that are unique to your family. And that that's what defines Christmas for me, is, is those little events. Yeah. Um, so so I, I just wanted to try and have that in there, basically. But weirdly, it does start with kind of a big romantic gesture of going, I'm going to get on the train and go and spend Christmas with the person I love. So it does have that as the launch point. But then after that, it feels like... It's about trying to get home for Christmas, which again, and we made it in lockdown and I Mm. didn't realise how much it meant. Like it it took on a whole different meaning for me working on the film about trying to get home for Christmas because I I went two years without being able to get home because of COVID, you know, and in that time kind of my wife and I had a daughter and so she hasn't spent Christmas like in Wolverhampton with my family. So it kind of feels like, so that's going to happen this year is like the first time I'm going to get to go home and experience a, a proper family Christmas again for a couple of years so it does I wasn't you know obviously I you know I came up with the idea 10 years ago but now it feels like oh that's a thing now that people have had that you know that thing of being in the train station all the trains getting cancelled or, or you know when Boris Johnson came out and said well we aren't we aren't going to have Christmas this year and so I, you know that's actually given I'm not saying I was pleased when it happened and thought, yes, this is good for my film, but like, <laughs> like so it has, you monster it's your fault isn't it it's your it's... <laughs> Um, but it is an interesting, yeah, it's interesting that quite a few of us have experienced that, having, you know, mm. had that kind of mad last two years. Yeah. And did you always have the kind of culture clash element of it? The sort of, frankly, normal, you know, terrace house working people on one hand and the ridiculous posh show on the other? Yeah, that that was always quite early. That was That was locked in quite early for me in terms of thinking about the story, partly because it was something I'd started to experience. Again, like performing up in Edinburgh was the first time 
I mean, I've been to university. I guess that was the first. I'm like kind of, you know, working class family from Wolverhampton. And you go to university and you suddenly real, you start to integrate with some people and think, oh, my God, that you live like that, you know, and, and, I, and, <laughs> and, and, and that interests me. And, you know, you don't really start to make those links to people who live in that kind of life until you get to about that age, until, you know, like you're you're in your very early 20s. And, you know, my I was in Edinburgh and my friend, in fact, He's Humphrey Carr. He's the guy. He's um, yeah. He's you know he's a performer. He lives out in LA. He's the man who runs Wrexham with Ryan Reynolds. He's in the you know like the they've taken over Wrexham football club together. I was I was in Edinburgh with him. Got on very well with him. He was in, he was in another sketch group, and he said uh, he sent around a text in October saying, "Do you want to? Should we go for a, a writing weekend at my my parents' house to about four or five people?" We were like, "Yeah, that sounds great." And I thought, "Gosh, he's you know." must have a pretty decent pad if he's inviting five people and then we got to his house and it had you know a huge drive and it turns out he was you know landed gentry and living you know and it had his parents had this incredible country pile and he it turns out he was in you know much kind of he went to Eton, and it's all the things that he hadn't he hadn't talked about it at all because he was just meeting people as humphrey you know very normal guy and and, and that experience really appealed to me because i thought oh this is this is really interesting to me I, I don't know this world at all and so you know when obviously when you're looking at an idea of putting two people in some and you know how far can you how how far away can you get basically was was the challenge and and how much of a, a how much sort of reality did you want in there and how much kind of heightened reality because my my big issue is i'm not sure you can fit that many people in an ice cream van if i'm perfectly <laughs> honest but um but you know there, there's elements where it's kind of you're kind of pushing the believability and other elements which felt absolutely 100% grounded in in i have definitely done that i have experienced that my friend has done that you know so it, it's it's i guess a fine line to kind of walk and balance yeah it really is i mean I think partly my I think my brain when it comes to films is kind of quite stuck on those kind of slightly high concept 80s kind of films and I'm thinking of things like I don't know even things like Three Men and a Little Lady which was like one of my you know my sister and I was one of our favorite films or like Home Alone does it superbly and, and like that uh, Plane Trains and Automobiles things like that have like they have big set pieces and big visual comedic moments but a lot of the comedy is based on extremely realistic people being very yeah. funny. And, and that's always the dream for me. And like, you know, when I, I rewatched three minutes of lady a few, uh, a few weeks ago and, um, it's preposterous. Fiona Shaw, so and, good. I mean, yeah, exactly. And they're they're jumping over fences like the Great Escape, you know. And like Fiona Shaw's in a sidecar and piling around Britain in a mini and driving into ponds. And uh, I realised, like, oh yeah, this is the kind of film that's kind of a touchstone for me. Is like, and I a, a visual thing of like an ice cream van with packed full of people and things like that. Um, but but you know, Jim was very good. The Jim, the director, has done a lot of. Um, sitcom which was very important to me i need you know we were looking for a director who had done a lot of comedy um as well as feature and he was kind of had this brilliant venn diagram of that and he was always super keen on it being it's got to feel real the dialogue's got to feel real it's got to feel like we're in a real family home and, and i think i was quite keen on having a film of two halves where obviously the richard curtis world already exists and is a real kind of cinematic touchstone 
and I wanted, I did want to have my cake and eat it a little bit in that you can still have those beautiful shots of Dorney Court where we filmed and it feel a bit like a Richard Curtis film. And yet you can also be in the front room in, in Macclesfield in a working class family and it feel real and believable. So, you know, I, I was trying to have my cake and eat it a little bit, I think. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the beauty of your format. That's the beauty of the idea. You can, you you literally need those two worlds for it to work. So, you know, fantastic. Yeah, I was quite keen. I was quite keen for that Richard Curtis side as well to be uncomfortable because, like, I think too often that Richard Curtis world is this. It is a it is a fairy tale realm, really. You know, you look at those films, you look at things like The Holiday and that followed suit down that line, and it's kind of the the, the slightly Americanized version of what a Christmas is like. But when you do go to those big houses, they are they're they're cold. They're bloody cold and they're quite uncomfortable and they are unwelcoming mm-hmm. and dark and creaky and the plumbing's terrible. Like if you have a shower in those houses, it's awful. Whereas if you go home to a semi-detached house in Macclesfield, it's boiling and yes. you have a power shower and you have a great jacuzzi bath. And it's like, I, I, I was quite interested in that because actually the real, the comfortable side of the film is the is the working class house and actually the cold and, you know, disorientating side of the film is the in Richard Curtis land. So, I mean, like, this is a spoiler. People will have watched the film before listening to this. So that's why at the very end, it's not everybody going to the mansion for a slap-up meal from the larder. It's everyone going back into the ice cream van and back up the road. Yeah. And, and like, I, you know, when I, when I, and I toyed, we toyed a lot with both, basically. Sure. And, yeah. and, it, and one, it's a very easy note to give. And I got it a lot of times, which is surely that final Christmas meal should be in this beautiful hall this on this huge table. Yeah. But that yeah. isn't the perfect Christmas for me. And it isn't the perfect Christmas for, I think, the vast majority of people who watch the film. The, the perfect Christmas is the one when there isn't enough room around a table and you've got awkward chairs and stalls at different heights and you're all packed in and, you know, that you're, you're eating with your elbow room. I, th- I feel like that's that's the destination that you wanted your characters to end up in. So we kind of, we did, you know, and we found a way of contriving that that's what they did. In the, in the, in the, oh, no, Granny. Oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We thought, well, hopefully we'll get a laugh out of that and we'll be able to get where we want to go. <laughs> I'm Sam Clements, host of the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival, another podcast in the Stripped Media family, a podcast that celebrates movies under 90 minutes long. Each episode, I'm joined by a special guest who selects a movie to join our prestigious lineup. Past guests have included fellow Stripped Media family members Martin and Sam from Song by Song and Kobe from Flixwatcher and Dave from The Wire Stripped. Search for us now on the app you're currently listening to this podcast or join us at 90minfilmfest.com. So tell me about um, about your your two lead characters um, because I talked to Cora and Asa earlier in the week and they were both very complimentary about you. That's that's so that's the good oh, that's news. Nice. Um, but also, you know, Cora was saying like you were very keen to hear from actual twenty year olds and and just like make sure is this is this how you talk? Is this what you say? How would what would you say here? Is that true? <laughs> yeah, totally. And I mean, obviously, from a writing point of view as well. I mean, I, I initially. I, I wrote what I know and I kind of set it in the Midlands. Like it was set in Wolverhampton. And then once we started the casting process, um, I, it suddenly occurred to me, oh, I'm going to have to listen to people attempt a Midlands accent. <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> thing for someone from the Midlands to have to do. <laughs> and I suddenly thought, oh, God, 
I don't know if I want it to be from the Midlands, actually, because I was, you know, <laughs> listening to perfectly good performers mangle an accent that is, by all accounts, quite hard to do. <laughs> so I was quite comfortably, I was, I was very comfortable with the decision of shifting it f- um, further north. And then, obviously, with Cora coming from that area, Angela coming from that area, you know, it it, it was great to have people, for, you know, who were familiar with the local rhythms and the local dialect. A, so there was the kind of regionality of it. And then B, um, yeah, definitely with the generational thing, because, it, I mean, like, it's mad. Even now, like, when, when we first came to the casting process, I remember thinking, oh, what about this person? And um, the casting director would say, they're 32. <laughs> so I'd be like, oh, yes. I, I, I thought they were young. And it's like the people who I thought were young aren't young anymore. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's, it's, real- it's a very traumatic thing when you realise that, isn't it? It's <laughs> like, oh, no, I'm ancient. Yeah, I, uh, yeah I interviewed um, someone else the other day who referred to The Amber Spyglass, the His Dark Materials book, as a really old book from before no. I was born. No, no, And then no. I crumbled to dust and, and, and blew away in the wind. Oh, um, oh man. So, yeah, brutal. Yeah. That is brutal. <laughs> that, um, I didn't. I, I wasn't prepared. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we were, we were really lucky with the leads because I, I really like the way it worked out in that Asa is... I mean, it, it kind of mirrored the situation in the script somehow in that mm-hmm. Acer is so experienced around a, a set yeah. and is so, you know, he's such a brilliantly calming presence. Um, and he very he was very quick to come on board after he read the script. And I think once we knew we had Acer, we felt like the appeal of pairing him off with a newcomer really yeah. appealed to us. And, you know, Haley was you know, obviously is always out of her depth and Cora wasn't out of her depth at all. I, I'm not saying that, but, you know, the first time she's been a lead in a, in a feature of this kind of scale and, you know, on her first day to be going into a, a one-on-one scene with Harriet Walters, you know, and like, and, and her to be like, wow, you know, I'm in this world now. I felt like, Cora is very good at transferring her natural energy to what she does on screen anyway. And it felt like it wasn't, yeah. you know, and we, both her and I, I mean, like when, when I, when I look at that script and I wrote the script, I, I think I project most onto Haley, as you know, like she's me really in the, you know, the person who I have most connections to. And I felt like from day one of the read through, like I got to the room 20 minutes early cause I was just buzzing and nervous and excited and, I thought, oh, God, you've got it 20 minutes early. And two minutes later, Cora arrived and she was in the exact same boat, you know, and we were both like <laughs> from that from that moment on, we were like, oh, we're we're exactly the same in this process, yeah. you and I. And um, I felt a tremendous bond to her throughout the whole process because of that, really. Um, but, I, really you know, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I think it does. I, th- I think the energy, I think that, trans, you know, that transfers to the to the to the screen, I think. And so what was the process like for you then? This is your first feature. I know you, you know, you have experience in, in lots of other things yeah. of this sort, but, yeah. but, you know, get, handing it to the director, getting that cast together, the shooting, and, and then, and then seeing all of this come of, you know, something you once sat down at your computer and wrote, how, how was it? But, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll say this, I learned an awful lot about what it means to just be a writer, because being a comedian, you can you can edit in the moment. You're you're kind of your own director a lot of the times. And even if you are working with a director, they're not the boss of, you know, you're in, you're slave to like the absolute moment and you're kind of rewriting yeah. as you go. It can be very improvisational. 
and uh, and you have that control that's quite hard to to relinquish and J- jim was very collaborative and i was on set every day and he was always re- he said like you know if you ever have any notes come to me straight away and yet what you know what i really learned about this process and jim said it himself he said like you know a film gets made three times it gets made when it's written it gets made as it's filmed and it gets made in the edit and and you know i was in charge of making the film on the paper i wasn't in charge of making the film in the edit and my notes you know jim's notes to me when i'm writing i could take some and i could leave some and in the same way in the edit he'd take and leave my notes and i realized oh it's not my film it's my script you know and i can be fiercely i'm I'm really proud of the end product i think jim's done a tremendous job but i do know that it's jim's film and i know it's my script and that's a lesson i wasn't planning on learning I, I thought you know i thought i feel ownership of everything and i don't and i feel like that's quite it's quite a liberating thing to realize um from a you know as previously been a writer and a performer a director with a lot of like live comedy and things it's like oh this is the difference and going forward now you realize that you know just how much you have to translate exactly what you mean onto the script and there's a lot you know lessons i've learned i could i could waffle on all night but it's like you know one of the crucial things is if you love an idea if you love a joke if you love you've got to make it essential to the script else it will not survive the edit and there's a lot of there's a lot of things that didn't survive the edit because i didn't make them essential as a writer so that's 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 the one bit of wisdom i I will certainly take away into my next you know scripts will be will be that um but gosh i mean like the process was a it was a dream and and like learn learn a lot watching jim and I had these kind of pinch me moments where for the director's rehearsals, they'd clear the set just to do the director's rehearsal. And it was me, it'd be the, the continuity editor and Jim, three of us and the cast. And to be in a room with Alex Jennings and Harriet Walters mm. doing the lines that I'd rewritten the night before. And I just was sat in the corner watching, you know, like, like you know, from a, a theatre fan, like I watched Harriet Walters be Lady Macbeth opposite Anthony Sher. It's one of the best performances of anything I've ever seen in my life. And there she is doing my script and that, those moments. She's pin- incredible. Pinch yeah. me moments. It was a dream. And I know it sounds like a cliche. I said to the casting director, I said, for Iris, I said, obviously not Harriet Walters, God, but someone like Harriet Walters would be incredible. And three days later, I was on a Zoom to Harriet. <laughs> like, she was like the example of you know, can we get someone like her, please? And yeah. then there we were. Rachel Freck, the casting director, worked absolute miracles on this film. And um, I, I felt exactly the same way, you know, with one of my favourite things about the film. Perhaps the thing I think I'm most proud of, actually, about the film is that it's got the cast, you know, Ram John Holder is 88, mm-hmm. you know, David Bradley june watson they are in you know in this into their late into their 70s brilliant brilliant performers and um there's such a presence in the film and then in the same mm. way with aston and harris the two younger kids who play anton deck you know they're such a presence in the film and that's what for me that's what christmas is like christmas is christmas isn't time for good looking 25 year olds to try and find a date what it's about is putting up with your your stupid little brothers and spending t- more time than you do all year with your grandparents who are kind of you know problematic now or <laughs> different and the, the different rhythms of christmas I feel like we captured the different rhythms and I think Jim did such an amazing job of conducting those rhythms and getting those onto the scene. But, you know, and Rachel did an incredible job of casting 
those parts but like that to have that variety and the different rhythms through the cast i I love that i do love that um yeah i am i am i'm very proud of that and uh gosh yeah it's kudos to rachel i mean when she said she was getting ram john holder who was pork pie in desmond's i mean that is i mean that's comedy royalty for me you know like Des- I, absolutely i used to watch desmond's religiously and i yeah. just it was it's hilarious it, brilliant it, brilliant incredible show. incredible yeah and so you know when when i found that out that's when i was like i was texting all my mates saying pork pies in my film <laughs> incredible <laughs> <laughs> okay this is a christmas movies podcast i want to ask a couple of christmas movie questions just about you you know what are your go-tos do you have ones that you watch every year were the ones that were were a particular influence maybe on this or or even a, a sort of disinfluence stuff you didn't want to do i think you've talked a bit about the kind of hallmarkier end of the spectrum already yeah i mean i mean the the perfect film i think it, it, it separate from being a christmas film my perfect film is home alone like from a mm-hmm. from a screenplay point of view from a comedic point of view the concept and how they deliver like you know it's the dream film in that we're going to we're going to tell a really high concept implausible story we're going to walk that tightrope for the first 15 minutes of the script we're going to land it every step of the way with laughs and you're going to believe it and then we're going to have our fun it's like it's perfect and you know the 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 things that i think are important in christmas movie you know like you've got this brilliant built-in deadline of everything has to be all right by christmas morning or christmas dinner that's that's the deadline and you know home alone really delivers on that muppets christmas carol after christmas they're, they're my big three like um I, you know and you know elf is fantastic um as well but i, I mean like, they're my big three arthur christmas i remember watching arthur christmas and thinking god i didn't think another classic christmas movie maybe there, there wouldn't be another one and then it arrived and i was like oh this is going to be a classic christmas film and again family at its core uh, you know really high concept idea but it delivers it in such a you know effortless way and and you've got your classic deadline of everything being all right for christmas morning so they're big touchstones for me and again i mean like arthur christmas peter bainham wrote and i know or co-wrote and um he's kind of a bit of a a hero of mine when you look at the trajectory of you know doing comedy in edinburgh on radio Four, transferring to writing feature films and being in the background of a lot of brilliant features now you kind of go god that's the that's the dream you know <laughs> to be that kind that's what the dream is i think um so yeah I, they're my big shout outs and, and i mean like muppets christmas carol obviously is that's our sing-along every you know it's every uh christmas eve we all sit down as a family we wait till we've all got back from wherever we live and it's got to be muppets christmas carol magic I magic think, I, yeah it's it's very very hard to beat. Um, finally, because I've got to I've got to um, let you go. But uh, I, I always ask everybody: Do you have any unusual Christmas traditions in your house that other people maybe don't do? You know, do you open a present on Christmas Eve? Do you eat a particular weird thing that it is not Christmas without? Um, we, I mean, we have your we have um, we have a family tradition of Boxing Day football match where one day of the year we all play football together, and so we book a we book either a five-a-side football court or we go to a playing field. And because I've got a large family, we're kind of able to play kind of a decent game of football. It's the only time we play football together. And it's like a rites of passage. Like my daughter's two and I'm thinking 
will she be able to play a little bit this year? Maybe I'll have to wait until she's three. I, th- I think it would be super cute if she did. I mean, I don't know that I'd particularly want her on my team if it's competitive. No. Yeah, and it does get competitive. Just think of the photos, though. Think of the photos. Yeah, exactly. So it could be her first Boxing Day football match, but that's become kind of, that's a big event and a lot of the talk on the, and we don't, we never, we it's the only time we all get together to play sport together so there's lots of talk of whose team who's going to be on whose team on christmas day night and that kind of thing so um so i don't know many people who do that and like we've we've you know there's been years where i've had to clean we me and my dad have had to go down early and scrape snow off the pitch so that people you know that we can play and there's been arguments i remember one year where my granddad who's not with us anymore kind of ruled me offside for a goal that <gasps> i don't think was offside i was nine years old <laughs> It's one of those things that stays with you, though, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I was a, I was a yeah. nine-year-old boy, and he called me offside. I didn't even understand the offside rule. Um, so we do, we do have that um, on Box Day football, and then we all go back and have bubble and squeak. I mean, Boxing Day is my favourite day of Christmas. Actually, I think that's um, again. I mean, from a writing point of view. Boxing Day isn't exciting to write about because no one, you know, just sits around us. And but there was a very good you know note. what there was there was a, a film called Boxing Day last year, which is mostly set at the Boxing Day get together. Yeah, and it's pretty good. No, pretty it good. is. Yeah, so, I was, yeah. was going to say it is. It is. And I, 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 as soon as it, um, as soon as it came out, I saw the title and I thought, absolutely fair play. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. It's called a film <laughs> Boxing Day. Superb. <laughs> Amazing. Well, listen, thanks so much uh, for talking to us. Hopefully we'll be back in a few years. You'll have made some kind of sequel. I'm not quite sure how that works. I know. Your your Christmases or mine. Um, your Christmas or mine too. I don't know. We'll we'll workshop it. Okay. But, uh, Great. But yeah, best of luck anyway. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. Cheers. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays! just heard a stripped media production.